Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in. This podcast is being developed for members of the Chicago COVID Contact Tracing Corps. The intention of this podcast is to create conveniently accessible content that can further one's understanding of public health concepts relevant to contact tracing. Today, we'll be discussing COVID-19 data in Chicago, what is collected, how we can find it, and what to make of it. But first, introductions. The Chicago COVID Contact Tracing Corps, referred to here on as Chai Tracing, is a two-year grant for community-based organizations to hire, train, and support 600 individuals to conduct contact tracing in their community. This grant is sponsored by the Chicago Department of Public Health, and its key administrative partners are the Chicago Cookforce Work, Chicago Cook Workforce Partnership, Malcolm X College, Nork at the University of Chicago, the Sinai Urban Health Institute, and the University of Illinois at Chicago School of Public Health. My name is Conchetta. I'm an MPH student here at the UIC School of Public Health Division of Community Health Sciences. And it's my privilege to be here today virtually with UIC School of Public Health Division Director of Epidemiology and Biostatistics, Dr. Ronald Herschow. Dr. Herschow, thank you very much and welcome. How are you today? I'm well. Uh, how, are, how are you doing, Conchetta? I am doing great. It is a fine, unseasonably warm October afternoon and I am enjoying it. I guess it's the morning, isn't it? <laughs> Last time I saw you, it was the afternoon. So Dr. Hershout, you teach epidemiology here at UIC and a lot of your work has to do with viral infection and prevention, both globally and locally. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved in chai tracing? Uh, yes, well, um, I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist. I um, started my epidemiology career at the Centers for Disease Control in the uh, Epidemic Intelligence uh, Program, or EIS. Mm -hmm. And uh, while there, I worked on uh, viral hepatitis. I, I am an MD, and, and um, I'm also clinically trained in infectious diseases. And um, when I finished up at the CDC, uh, the EIS program, I was looking for a job that, you know, would combine uh, clinical infectious diseases and um, the public health aspects of infectious diseases and uh, found this uh, job here in UIC. And I came, came to UIC's School of Public Health in 1987 and been here ever since. And... Uh, mm -hmm. Um, after coming to the CDC, I uh, focused my career mainly on HIV infection and particularly mm -hmm. on HIV infection as it affects women um, and uh, substance users. And uh, in, in that capacity, I've uh, done a fair amount of work um, on various aspects of HIV, both uh, its uh, clinical control with antiretroviral therapies. Some of that work has been overseas uh, in Indonesia. Also done some work on some um, AIDS-defining events like tuberculosis. And some of that work um, was focused on investigating contact tracing for tuberculosis in substance users. Uh, hmm. So when this um, uh, COVID epidemic happened, uh, it, it seemed like an opportunity to um, use some of my skills to inform contact tracing, which was um, burgeoning as, as a major modality to help us control um, this dreadful disease. And, um, and then I was pleased when uh, I was asked to join the team for the chai tracing endeavor that partners with 
as you said, our community-based organizations uh, to try to offer, uh, well, to try to uh, increase our um, public health workforce on contact tracing. Um, and um, that's pretty much where, where I got here. Mm -hmm. Wow. So you have a lot of background um, in contact tracing in the past. So what interests or excites you most about chai tracing and how is it different from work you might have done before? Um, well, what really attracts me about chai tracing is the uh, community level involvement that it represents. Uh, we are the University of Illinois, um, and we take our mandate as a state institution very seriously to serve the state and, and the city of Chicago um, and the and really the communities that we live in and, and work in. Um, so I uh, was uh, excited at the prospect of partnering with community-based organizations. Uh, I've been involved in other community work. Uh, uh, some of that in the context of our community outreach intervention projects that um, do uh, substance use epidemiology and service endeavors in communities where substance use are very is very prevalent in Chicago. And uh, I was used to working uh, in communities and that I think is the strength of the uh, chai tracing program is that it partners with community based organizations that are indigenous to our com communities, embedded within our communities, and the model of hiring um, community members to engage in contact tracing really excites me. And it, I also like the potential embedded the, in the chai tracing uh, endeavor uh, to potentially um, continue to do uh, health work even beyond COVID when let's say we get control of this disease. I, I'm looking forward to a future where some of those contact tracers uh, can be lateralized to, to new uh, public health challenges over time. Uh, and uh, I uh, you know, saw this as a chance to get in on the ground floor of that uh, very exciting um, uh, prospect and a way of dealing not only with COVID, which of course is our preeminent concern right now mm -hmm. and must be our main focus, but even beyond COVID to other health challenges that will confront Chicago. Yeah, so you mentioned that in the past you've, you've worked a lot with substance abuse and I know you're not necessarily working on these two projects together or they don't overlap at all, but I'm curious, can you imagine a way in which, um, or have you thought about a way or has this been something you've mulled over like on how substance abuse and COVID might be interacting or impacting um, one another? Yeah, you know, I think uh, substance using persons are generally speaking marginalized, have less access to uh, health services, to health care, and um, and so I think um, in that sense, they are, uh, you know, a real disparity exists for substance users uh, that will uh, undoubtedly translate into higher um, case occurrence in substance using populations, mm -hmm. less uh, access to healthcare once they develop COVID infection, delayed entry into healthcare, um, and, um, 
And of course, I, I think the other thing that excites me about chai tracing is that from the onset of the epidemic in Chicago, and for that matter, throughout the United States, um, we've seen that communities of color are disproportionately affected by this outbreak. Um, and uh, part of the excitement of, of the chai tracing program is uh, the ability to um, identify and ameliorate some of the health inequalities that are inherent in, in the way COVID has, uh, has uh, rolled out um, in Chicago and elsewhere throughout the United States. Um, we are seeing um, uh, that, uh, that, for example, the, the CDC just released data in August that showed that rates of hospitalization for COVID nationwide were four to six times higher in African-American, Latinx, and American Indian populations. And these inequalities are just, um, you know, just such a stark reality and, and and it's what one of those things that makes me get up every day happy that I'm doing this work so that I can try to uh, counteract and and um, and improve those kinds of health inequalities. Just to confirm, you said four to six times higher? Higher in African-American, Latinx, and American Indian populations. That's in wow. comparison with white populations. Wow. So the, the, this is a great segue. I want to backtrack a little bit into um, the presentation you gave back, I think probably in, in August, um, an orientation to the community-based organizations to the Chai Tracing Program. And you discussed this importance of data, like four to six times higher, and how we can track um, COVID-19 data in the city of Chicago, what some resources are, um, et cetera. So I want to talk a little bit about that too, to give anybody listening who might not have seen your presentation a backdrop to, to some of these just, just stark numbers, stark contrasts, as, you, as you've mentioned. Um, so in this presentation, you discussed four indicators that are key to monitoring COVID, um, case rate, death rate, ICU bed capacity, and test positivity. How are these indicators defined and why are they critical to responding to the pandemic? Yeah, I think two of them are pretty self-explanatory. The case rate is simply counting cases of diagnosed COVID uh, disease. And usually we like to construct rates, meaning that we calculate the number of cases over the number of people in our communities. Um, so that is usually expressed as per 100,000 population. And we get those denominators, those uh, um, population numbers from census data. You know, we're currently engaged in the US Census right now and we'll be updating those numbers uh, uh, as a result of that. Uh, so um, that's the case rate. Death rate is pretty self-explanatory too. It's COVID-related deaths over, again, population. Um, and uh, it's a very stark indicator um, of uh, COVID progression around uh, Chicago and, 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 and the US. Um, uh, the ICU bed capacity is also easy to understand. Uh, IC, intensive care unit beds are a limited resource. Uh, they can be filled up, uh, those beds. And, and we've seen in many jurisdictions around the country, um, uh, surges in COVID incidents and 
moments in time where ICU beds are, um, are, are overwhelmed and that there's uh, limited capacity to house and to hospitalize patients with COVID. Right mm -hmm. now in nearby Wisconsin, we're hearing about reports in places like Green Bay, Wisconsin, uh, that ICU bed capacity is is near uh, near is nearly um, over uh, at that point where um, it's hard to know exactly where we'll will house patients at a certain point uh, when those all those ICU beds are filled. We have various plans for overflow, and and uh, you'll recall that the McCormick Center was used for possible surge capacity to provide extra bed space for intensive care patients. Um, but um, you know, it's uh, clearly something we keep close track of, and we start to be concerned when our ICU bed capacity falls to about twenty percent um, mm -hmm. uh, of of the hundred percent capacity that we normally have. Uh, so that's something we keep a careful eye on. Uh, test positivity rate is is the uh, you know we're we're engaged in a lot of COVID testing both in Chicago and nationally. And with the, what the test positivity rate is simply the number of positive tests that, that we uh, diagnose every day over the number of tests that are performed. And what we've found is that um, this positivity rate is a fairly sensitive marker of, um, uh, of uh, increasing uh, epidemic uh, transmission in communities. Um, and um, we have come up with some conventions about these positive ra positivity rates. For example, for example, the World Health Organization um, says that a test positivity rate of 5% or better or lower, that is, has to be achieved before any uh, community uh, should consider uh, full reopening, uh, economic reopening, business reopening, and so forth, schools reopening. We uh, in Chicago have, during the summer, been skirting along that 5% number almost exactly at 5% for much of the summer. Uh, in recent weeks, we've gone down to about 42 or 1.3%. So we have improved uh, in the city of Chicago. But in um, we keep an eye on it because when that uh, rate starts to go north, it usually signifies that there is something going on in the community that that outbreaks are starting to occur that may again uh, overwhelm our healthcare facilities, those intensive care unit beds, and uh, considered together these these indicators give us a sense of what is going on in our communities. Okay. That, so looking back to your four to six times higher, was that case rate? That that was hospitalization rate, COVID-related okay. hospitalization rate. That is not one of the four I mentioned, uh, but it's certainly, uh, I think, related to intensive care unit bed capacity. Uh, it, it's, uh, you know, being hospitalized for COVID is, of course, a crude indicator of severity. Um, mm -hmm. you, don't, you don't go into the hospital uh, unless you're severely ill with COVID. Uh, so uh, uh, it's, it's another, uh, yet another important indicator, I would say, of, of what's going on with COVID in our communities. And, and that was just uh, a number I, I, I gave to give a sense of the disparities that are affecting our communities of color. Um, yeah, and I think that's a really good point too, because 
So even though on these dashboards we're looking at with public health data, we're looking at case rate, death rate, ICU bed capacity, and those are important indicators. Other indicators might help explain some of the disparities or um, show, like you mentioned, show severity. And those are other important things in terms of understanding why COVID affects certain people more than others. Um, and that's really important work as well. Crucial work, really. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, I, I think we are really blessed uh, in this city with wonderful health department leadership and um, those um, dashboards that have been um, uh, developed on, on the uh, public-facing websites, uh, public, uh, publicly available to anyone. Anyone can go to the Chicago Department of Public Health COVID dashboard and examine what's going on in their zip code, uh, in their community. Uh, so it's a, a really great resource. And of course, from a public health point of view, we always say that decision-making uh, should be data-driven, that we should use data to make decisions. And and the availability of reliable data uh, in in Chicago and elsewhere in the United States is extremely important to responding effectively uh, to this challenge of COVID-19 that we're all confronting right now, that we're in the middle of right now. Mm -hmm. So I want to point out that these dashboards we're talking about um, we created a one-pager that will have links to these dashboards, but essentially it's the COVID-19, if you Google COVID-19 data in Chicago, you'll be guided to the Chicago government city website, and you'll be able to find a dashboard there. And then there's also a state-level dashboard listeners can find on the Illinois Department of Public Health website. So um, both of these sources show a combination of the indicators we just discussed. Um, and I guess my follow-up question to you, is, uh, Dr. Hershaw, is what indicators can we find on these sites? Um, how might they differ from each other? And the two sites, I guess, and what are some of the key things we can learn from them? Yeah, I mean, I think you'll be able to find all of the um, indicators that I just defined a few minutes ago on, on these websites. Um, and, uh, the, the difference between the Illinois Department of Public Health website and the Chicago Department of Public Health site uh, is to some extent the graphic design of it, uh, but more importantly, the Illinois Department of Public Health divides the state of Illinois into 11 regions, only one of which is the city of Chicago, that's region 11 on the uh, Illinois state uh, dashboard. Uh, suburban Cook County, for example, is region 10 on that map. Um, and uh, then you can go to other regions in the state um, and navigate your way around and look at things like the positivity rate and the ICU bed capacity uh, in those regions and so forth. Um, and um, uh, something I really love about the Chicago Department of Public Health dashboard is how easy it makes it to sort the data by uh, race ethnicity. And when you do that, you get a really stark, uh, dramatic graphic representative representation of these health disparities. And, and you can see really at a glance what I'm saying that that although communities of color, African-American and Latinx communities 
um, represent a minority of the population, they, uh, they nonetheless um, account for a majority of the cases, the deaths, and, and, uh, and the hospitalizations for COVID. Can you talk a little bit more about how COVID has just, how we've used these dashboards to see how COVID has disproportionately affected some of the marginalized populations um, that we've discussed? And how can you maybe define a little bit more how you can tell that um, those differences exist by looking at the data? Um, yeah, well, I'm not sure how I can expand too much on that. We, we just, uh, you know, these rates are numeric and one can see that there are higher rates um, uh, among certain racial, racial ethnic groups that um, again are defined, uh, uh, we see that clearly in the Chicago data for Latinx and African-American communities uh, that those uh, rates are higher and um, and uh, and not only that we can uh, pinpoint the geography of where this is occurring like I said uh, uh, oh. on the on the uh, Chicago dashboard you can go zip code by zip code and and examine what's going on uh, in your community um, these uh, these uh, uh, racial ethnic groups are color coded so you can look at the rates over time and see um, just how elevated the rates are in African American and Latinx communities compared to uh, white populations and um, and you can see where those disparities are the starkest and that was in part the way we guided uh, which which community-based organizations to partner with in the chai tracing endeavor was that we wanted to center uh, those efforts in communities that are disproportionately affected uh, by COVID-19. So it's a combination of the ability to sort by racial ethnic groups and to um, geocode and, and, and spatially look at, at a map of Chicago and see what mm. within the cities where, where the disease is um, uh, currently most intensely being transmitted uh, that gives the power of these data to guide decision makings. So that if you're, let's say you're an alderman in, in a ward in Chicago, you can go to the dashboard and see how your, how your communities are doing on the dashboard um, uh, or your community area is doing in, on, on the dashboard. So uh, that makes it a very powerful tool. And, and again, we um, directly use these data to decide, for example, on things like reopening of society Currently, Illinois is mostly in phase four, which is a you know a partial reopening where we can engage in uh, in gatherings uh, of uh, uh, of less than fifty people, provided that masks are worn and and efforts are made to distance within those gatherings, um, and uh, that businesses are open now, albeit at reduced capacity. Uh, um, before that, we were in phase three, where we had a much more restricted approach to uh, which businesses were open and, and so forth. And that's just another sort of um, 
a great example of how we use the data, how the governor, uh, how Governor Pritzker uses the data to decide on uh, what phase of reopening to put us in. And, and should we have a surge in incidents in uh, Chicago? Right now we're seeing, like I said earlier, a, a surge in Wisconsin. The leadership of our state, the governor can take a look at that and say, you know, I think we have to go back to phase three for a while because we need to calm this down. We're seeing that in New York now with Mayor de Blasio, um, you know, going zip code by zip code really and, and making decisions at a, at a, at a very uh, uh, jurisdictional level on which, uh, on how to modify openings of businesses in different communities. We've heard, for example, that Orthodox Jewish communities in New York, New York are, are, uh, very much burdened by uh, COVID right now, and and those neighborhoods may see restrictions that are not true of of other areas of the city where disease is not as intense right now. Is Chicago currently utilizing this sort of? That's really interesting. It, are they is Chicago using the zip code method to to target its policies? I'm not sure the extent to which they use zip code uh, to target uh, their policies. Uh, but it, it does enable any Chicago citizen to look at their own uh, zip code and for, like I said, political leaders to look mm -hmm. at, at zip code. You know, sometimes zip codes don't match up with community areas. We, we tend to think of, when we think of Chicago, we think of names like Englewood or um, Back of the Yards and mm -hmm. those kind of community areas don't often exactly match up with zip codes but if you uh you know which if you know which zip codes uh, are contained within a given community area you can still get a pretty uh pretty good sense of what's going on in your community area so this will be um i like this a lot so this is so these dashboards will be a great tool for community-based organizations to a great public tool um, that they can use to look at COVID-19 COVID indicators and inform their own decision-making. Yeah, I would say that's absolutely true, uh, uh, Conchetta. Awesome, thank you. I, so I wanna touch back on the basics real quick because I think you made a really good point in your last presentation um, when you discussed how we can look at uh, the positivity rate on the Chicago COVID-19 dashboard and see this two-week gap, uh, or not gap, so to speak, but kind of, yeah, well, I guess gap between positivity rates and death rates or case rates and death rates. And I was wondering if you could talk a little, reorient some of the listeners who might not have seen your presentation to, to how that works. Yeah, there, like I said, the, the, the two sort of self-explanatory um, indicators are case rates, which are uh, COVID diagnoses that are that are being made on an ongoing basis in, in in Chicago, let's say, and we can we can plot them over time. And uh, before uh, the perhaps the earliest indicator of a surge in any community uh, is the case rate. Uh, hospitalization rates and death rates t tend to lag behind case rate. And that's uh, simply explained by the fact that if somebody is diagnosed with COVID, generally the first week of illness 
is not that severe. The uh, severest presentations generally emerge in the second or even third week of, of the infection. Um, and that's when people end up having to enter the hospital for care, mm -hmm. uh, often because they develop uh, respiratory difficulty or shortness of breath. Um, and uh, and need some support uh, in terms of uh, oxygen therapy or in the most severe cases, mechanical ventilation. Uh, so um, so that because the because of the fact that that there is this lag between the occurrence or the diagnosis and the severest end of the disease, the the um, uh, the respiratory difficulties that that often lead to hospitalization and and in some very severe cases lead to death. Um, we see that two week lag. So cases go up first, and then about two weeks later, we see a a, a surge um, in uh, the death rates and the hospitalization rates mm -hmm. from that disease. So uh, I guess uh, for those of us who are tracking the epidemic. Um, uh, we watch cases first and then uh, then carefully uh, wait to see uh, what will happen in t terms of hospitalizations and um, and uh, unfortunately death rates mm -hmm. uh, uh, so um, yeah so I, I, I guess that's mm -hmm. that's that's what I meant about that lag uh, that we see in in the data and um, of course some uh, what we've also seen recently in Chicago data is that COVID is tending over time to uh, affect uh, younger persons uh, mm -hmm. than it was early in our in our Chicago epidemic. Back in those terrible days of April and May, we were seeing lots of nursing home outbreaks in Chicago, and one of the uh, success stories of of the COVID nineteen epidemic in Chicago and uh, in other places around the United States, is that we have implemented measures in nursing homes that have lessened the impact on our elderly populations and our nursing home populations. And uh, during the summer, we had this switch in the epidemiology of COVID where, uh, where our case rates and our hospitalization rates uh, 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 started particularly our case rates, started shifting to a younger population group. And what we found with this disease is that younger people tend to have less severe outcomes than older people, although certainly young adults with comorbidities like uh, coronary artery disease or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or diabetes or high blood pressure, those communities can still have very severe outcomes. And for that matter, um, we're even seeing severe outcomes in, in healthy uh, young people as well. I was reading uh, uh, data from the New York Times today on COVID on campuses, and there uh, have been two deaths among students, uh, previously healthy college students on in American college campuses. Mm -hmm. But the point of fact is that it's much less common for the young to have those kinds of severe outcomes than the elderly and the adults with um, underlying uh, severe uh, uh, comorbidities or conditions like the ones I just named a few seconds ago. Um, thank you for that. And that's, yeah, that's, it's, 
terribly saddening to see these trends and of these death rates and um, just wow, wow. Um, so I wanted to ask, kind of get us closer to, to wrapping up. I'm curious, what are some of the central challenges to collecting and utilizing COVID-19 data that we should be mindful of? Yeah, you know, I think it's, it's a huge challenge. It's a huge public health uh, uh, expenditure and uh, there's tremendous labor involved and person time involved in, um, in simply counting cases of COVID and uh, keeping track of hospitalizations. And we spend that money, we, we spend that public, that precious public health money on our surveillance systems because like I said, they help us make good decisions about disease. You, you can't really effectively fight a disease unless you know where it is, who's it, uh, how it's being, how, how the disease is distributed uh, in different communities. It enables you to be more surgical in your allocation of public health resources, rushing resources to those communities that are particularly burdened and affected by COVID-19. And um, like anything else, you know, um, uh, there can be inaccuracies in surveillance data. There can be underreporting of cases. We feel that that's you know fairly good in in our Chicago data that we we're like I said earlier we're blessed with excellent um, health departments that that perform excellent surveillance activities, uh, but. There's no such thing as perfect surveillance that has no missing data. So we have to guard against um, missing data. I think another thing to be aware of is that, um, you know, we uh, have evidence that some people um, are dying of COVID in their homes and never making it into healthcare. And most disease reporting occurs in the context of seeking healthcare and seeking a, a diagnosis. And if you're fully disenfranchised and uh, living in impoverished circumstances, you may not have the access to healthcare that will lead, first of all, to care for COVID, but also to the reporting of your COVID disease. So we have to be uh, wary to some extent that there may be some underreporting in, in our data, and that may even encompass death. One one might think, well, you you can't very well miss a death, but uh, you can miss the cause of the death, and and if people are dying at home in their beds because they don't have access to good transportation to get to healthcare, or or access to healthcare because they don't have insurance, uh, and so forth, you you can undercount them. And we do keep uh, track of something that's called the excess death rate, which is by comparing our death rates currently with prior years, we see that we are having excess deaths that sort of are beyond what we would expect from COVID uh, affecting our communities, suggesting that in fact, a certain proportion of people who are dying of COVID aren't making it into our surveillance data. Um, so I think those are things to be aware of, but I, I guess I wanna end by saying that in general, we have really, really good data uh, in the city of Chicago um, and, um, and we have our health department leadership to thank for that. Dr. Hershaw, thank you. Um, your expertise here has been extraordinarily helpful and um, I really look forward to 
to everyone being able to have a chance to listen to this and let us know if they have any additional questions. Well, uh, thank you for um, inviting me <laughs> and yeah. thank you for your excellent, uh, you know, moderation of, the, of this session. I really, really think you did a great job and thank you so much for that. And uh, again, I look forward to working with you and everybody else at the school on, on the chai tracing endeavor. That's all for this episode on chai tracing. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, please do not hesitate to reach out or let us know if there's a topic you'd like to listen to next time. Until then, stay safe, Chicago.